Hello everyone, uh, I'm Aram Kumuf and this is uh, the Off The Record Show. Uh, today I have alongside me Anuj Adia, who is the author of the book Growth Hacking for Dummies. He mentors startups at Harvard Innovation Labs, Seed Starters, and the McCarthy Venture Network. Way before that, he was uh, a director of engagement analytics at Growth Hackers, working directly with well-known Sean Ellis, the so-called godfather of growth hacking. Anuj, thank you so much for joining our show today. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. I just know it. Awesome. Uh, I mean, I got to ask, what, what, what's the first question I have is, like, what was it like working um, alongside Sean Ellis? Yeah, that was surreal to say the least, because that was my first growth role uh, ever. So to have that chance itself was, like, how does that even happen? Um, but I, I think, you know, they... They say you should never meet your heroes, but I think sometimes you should, uh, <laughs> because I think you get a real sense of why people are good at what they do, right? And I think there were a couple things that you know, were proven out true, because you know, we've all read what Sean has written and done, right? And you know, the one thing that you know he was always about was, let's make sure we have a really great rate of learning and let's make sure we focus. And those seem ob like obvious things to say, uh, right? But it's actually really hard to pull off. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of the reason that is hard to pull off is because, A, you just need somebody at the top, you know, constantly beating the drum. And secondly, you need somebody who has a lot of empathy uh, for users and customers because, you know, everything growth people preach is all about growing value to users and customers. And the only way to really do that is to understand their motivations. Uh, and I think Sean was really good at that. And in fact, I think he was probably the first person that stood out to me as somebody who embraced the qualitative side of growth much more uh, than everybody else who was over-indexing a lot on you know, fancy mm -hmm. analytics. Uh, so that got proven to be true and drove that message home that really all of this falls apart if you don't understand sort of motivations and why people want to do things. No, that's really interesting. Was there anything kind of specific, like one big thing that you found that Sean had that no other growth hackers that you've come across or worked with uh, had have? Um, yeah, so you know, Sean, I think he's even been described by many people who know him. Like he's like a bit of a shark, in that he's very sharp about spotting opportunities way earlier than other people might see them. Uh, a lot of that comes from experience, but I think a lot of that also comes from this innate ability to just constantly challenge the status quo, and you know just inherently be open to trying out new things. Um, and so I think that combination of, you know, I can see things really early and there were times, and I've had this conversation with many people, like you start beginning a sentence like saying, duh, and he's like, yes, I have 10 ideas. And I'm like, I didn't even say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was sort of mind blowing to see that, uh, that, that innate ability to just say, yeah, I have so many ideas. And, but all of that, uh, you know, sort of was brought home through the one principle he drilled, you know, into all of us and his spouses even to today, that 
like if you're looking for a growth hack, right, the biggest growth hack is your rate of learning about what works and what doesn't work, right? Because what you're really doing when you have an accelerated rate of learning is you're creating this sort of time arbitrage between, you know, in what you know and when you know it versus when your competition knows it. Because they can steal your product and your customers and all of that, right? It's pretty brutal out there. But what they can't steal, right, is your learning and mm-hmm. how fast you've learned. So by the time they figure out what you know, and they will, you've already moved on to the next thing, uh, yeah. right? And while that concept, you know, always hit home over the last year or two, that's really sticking even more. You know, it's like one of those things you know and you understand and you have more experiences and you really get it and you're like, oh yes, this, like, this is really critical. Uh, Right, and so I think that combination of you know spotting opportunities really fast and then mm-hmm. honing in uh, and learning fast, I think was really the highlight of that experience. No, it's really interesting. I think uh, with his experience, with your experience even now, you you build this wealth of knowledge um, that is priceless at the end of the day through your experience that you start picking up and seeing things that other people don't do, and like that's just like priceless at the end of the day. So. No, it's really cool. Um, I, I mean, he's a, he's a big, I'm a big uh, fan of him. So, um, uh, I, the next question I have is something that we discussed um, last time when we had a chance to connect. And it was, it was around, you mentioned something along the lines of like early success has nothing to do with hustle, but everything to do with an unfair or with the unfair advantage. What, what did you mean by that? Can you unpack that for me? Sure. Um, so this is sort of related to the point I was just making, right? is th- there are 100 startups doing the same thing, right? And I mean, think of even how much content is out there, how many companies are being started every day. The amount of noise out there is overwhelming, right? And somehow in all of that, you have to figure out how to stand out. Right, mm-hmm. and you can build the greatest product you want, right, and build a really awesome team, and all of that. Yes, you know, sort of table stakes, right. But at the end of the day, what separates you or your odds of success from anybody else, right, is your ability to get noticed, right. And I guess in true growth fashion, your ability to get noticed faster than anybody else, and. In my experience, that ability to get noticed faster almost always comes down to you having access to something or somebody, right? That somebody else doesn't. And that to me is the essence of an unfair advantage. And, you know, a lot of it is just dumb luck, right? I mean, like between the two of us, right? Uh, Like if I have access to, you know, somebody like a Sean in my corner, like if we were building growth teams, right? And I have Sean on my team and, you know, you have some somebody who took a course, right? I'm fairly certain my odds of success are greater than yours. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? And so that's an unfair advantage in my corner. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the same thing applies to you know, all the startups that we've, you know, heard about. You know, I think if you were to really dig down and understand how did they get noticed first, Right. I, I think it was either they had access to money or people uh, that th- their competition did. And on, on this unfair advantage, what have you seen? I mean, 
money definitely helps, you know, having that unfriend ventures because, you know, you could try new things, you could experiment and, you know, learn along the way. Um, subject matter expertise or, you know, experience having done this before, you know, maybe mm -hmm. another company in the same industry. Um, access to a select group of people uh, that nobody else has access to before. Um, they're all different types of kind of unfair advantages, but do you think that um, people get it for free or like, you know, how do they go about getting that? Like what's, what's like yeah. the caveat, I guess. Well, so I guess not half of it is again, like I said, dumb luck. Like, hey, you know, my best friend is Ashton Kutcher, right? Okay, that's just, I, there's nothing replicable about that, right? Uh, but I think when you don't have the unfair advantage, you have to go about creating it. And you have to start thinking about it very actively. Uh, and so what that means is if you don't have that relationship with, you know, somebody who is really meaningful to your audience, you have to start dedicating time to build that relationship up. Right. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a smallish example, like, cause I'm patient zero for this. Uh, the only reason you and I are talking right now is because on September 30th, 2013, I clicked on one tweet by Sean Ellis that says, Hey, launching growth hackers. Right. And I didn't know Sean from anybody at that point. Right. But I clicked on that. I found the growth hackers community. I very organically, I didn't have like a selfish motive, but you know, very organically engaged, gave value, right? And two years later, I had a job offer, uh, right? And so I complete nobody, you know, somebody who comes from a non-marketing, non-growth background, mm -hmm. not in Silicon Valley, none of those advantages, right? No network, nothing to speak of, right? But if I was being intentional about it, that, hey, I actually wanted to create, you know, an, a relationship with somebody I think the only way to do that is to start engaging and delivering value to them. So when the time comes to make that ask, they can't help but say, of course. Right. right. But you have to right. start thinking about it, I think, far earlier than, you know, I think you think you might need it. And at the same time, you can't, it can't be this very transactional sort of thing because people can see through BS like that. Right. Uh, so that there's and, and everybody knows, like the whole world revolves around relationships, like. Right. And so everybody understands that at some point people are going to help everybody out. That's just the way things are. Yeah. Right? But somewhere there's this happy medium between, you know, what sort of you need and, you know, what they need and what makes for an authentic relationship. The perfect combo. Um. No, that's interesting. And so from your experience with working and advising, mentoring many startups through their growth journeys, what kind of patterns or what kind of things do you see which are proven out that leads to successful um, yeah. success, like growth-wise? Right. So I think, again, it, I may be beating a dead horse when I say that... Uh, you know, nothing happens until you hit product market fit, right? So, so let's establish that as startup failure rate is high, 80%, 90%, whatever that number is, right? Right, so after that is when you want to start thinking about growth. Right? And the misconception that I normally find, and this is true even for pre-product market fit people, is that I need to sort of 
you know, pour gas on things and I need attention quickly and I need millions of users because, you know, everybody sees the product hunt launches and sees the press on who raised N million dollars on TechCrunch and blah, 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 right? right? What is not as obvious because it's not as sexy to write about is all of the hard work that went into figuring out how to even get to that point. Mm-hmm. Because those, that path to a million users starts with one. And one becomes 10, and 10 becomes 20, and 20 becomes 100, and 100 becomes 1,000, right? But, and so there's this sort of hand-to-hand combat phase, pre-product market fit, right? That is just, again, nobody wants to talk about that because, you know, 100 users who wants to talk about that, right? Um, but after product market fit, right, that's like an interesting phase and a, and a potential trap waiting for people, uh, which is that, you know, people think I've gotten to that point, and then they're like, okay, uh, let, now, now we're ready. Let's just scale, right? And that's a huge trap because getting to product market fit has just proven that you have value. You haven't figured out how to optimally deliver that value, which means that you need to understand first, you know, what is it about your experience that's a must-have, and then figure out how to get most of the people that show up through that experience so that you have some sense of repeatability and predictability. And when you understand that, now you're ready to go spend your millions of dollars, you know, attract whoever you want, because now you have confidence, you have validated learning that suggests that if I bring 100 people through, 80% will stay. Because otherwise, you know, you can give me a million dollars today, right? I'll find you a million users tomorrow, right? I'll get them all to show up tomorrow. What I cannot guarantee for you is if they'll be around day after tomorrow. Right, and that's the foundation of a sustainable business, right? Is people sticking around and constantly experiencing the value of your product, right? And that's the unsolved bit because it's unique to every product, right? Acquisition is a solved problem. There's only so many ways to get users, mm-hmm. right? Retention is not solved because it's unique to you, right? And I think people want to over-index on the acquisition part and say, oh, I have 10,000 signups because you know maybe that's what VCs care about or that's what the press cares about. You know, versus what you really should think about is retained users, which is what, you know, builds a foundation for sustainable growth. Repeatable right. customers, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to, sorry, I was, I was just had a thought. I wanted to go back to something you said before around the unfair advantage and things like that. So, like, what can founders do um, who don't have access to that capital or that influencer how can they get ahead? Yeah, yeah. so I, I think the, the really short one word answer that, that's worked for me is Twitter. Like the, Twitter? that, I, yeah, I can't believe that app is free. Like it has literally changed my life. Uh, really? Okay. Because I think everybody who's, I think, sort of on the cutting edge of something especially in, in startup land, I think is there. Uh, and there's a, I have rarely seen as much sort of thought leadership and engagement willingness to engage around that thought leadership versus anywhere else that I have experienced, right? And so I think, again, it's almost like anybody who could be somebody that could help you out is putting themselves out there for free for you to engage with them. 
right? Now your first time engaging may not mean anything. Your second time may not mean anything, right? But as with everything, it's about consistency and sticking with it. But at some point, right, of constant focus on one thing, it becomes really hard for people to ignore you. Okay, so just a follow-up question to that. So how can you leverage Twitter to your advantage? Is it just finding the right people, messaging them, being yeah. top of mind, being So, so, I, like, think, yeah, so yeah. I think the one thing Twitter has done a really, really bad job of is communicating that it is an interest network more than a social network. Okay. Right. So if you are interested in a certain topic, whether that has something to do with the problem your startup is going to solve or a particular expertise you need to learn, whatever it may be, there is probably somebody who kicks ass at it hanging out on Twitter right there. So I would like just, you know, get like get yourself like a tweet deck account, right? And create columns for words and topics you're interested in and just start following people on there and looking at what shows up. Within there, there'll be some people who are really valuable and say things that resonate with you completely, right? So prune your lists of people, you know, create lists on Twitter. Lists are highly underused feature there, right? So that you only, it's like, you know, you're putting blinders on yourself, but you only look at that stuff. Like it's almost you immerse yourself in that universe. Because this is sort of what happened with me at Growth Hackers, right? Because I started showing up every day, even as somebody who knew Jack about growth, just by showing up every day, I started to understand who truly adds value, right? Who, you know, says things that are maybe contradictory, which is probably a good thing. And I was able to start connecting dots that nobody else could just because I was showing up every day, mm. not because I knew anything. And my first, I still remember my first, you know, set of interactions on growth hackers weren't, you know, what I thought. It was, hey, that sounds similar to that. Here are two dots that nobody else has connected. Or that's the opposite of that. What do people think? Right? And just connecting dots as a function of frequency and showing up, that I think will up your game, but also add a lot of value to everybody else showing up there. Right? And I think that's a great like simple first step to start taking is just immerse yourself in that world, put on blinders yeah. and the opportunities will suddenly start to emerge because you've seen everything there is to see. You're focused on that one thing. Oh, it's really interesting. And so how, if you do that and, you know, for example, if you don't have that unfair advantage, um, you, you build your list, you, you, you create engagement, um, how would you know at what stage like that you could determine success from what from sure. what you're doing? It's a great question. And so I think, you know, there's this uh, uh, almost open secret, if you will, that, you know, the real engagement is in the DMs. Uh, uh, right. So it's, it, it, it's, it's great to be engaging upfront. Right. And so I think, you know, a signal that I would look for is as I try to provide value to that conversation uh, that's going on, I think you want to look for when are you starting to get responses versus a like. Got it. Right? Because now you are more than somebody who has just engaged. Now you're somebody worth responding to. 
And if they respond to you, that is the moment you go into the DMs. Right? So think of it as like a funnel, right? You engage, you get the likes. The next step yeah. is get a get a comment. Okay, now I want a private comment. Okay. Right. And, and then, then what... that's a completely separate conversation from that point on because like a funnel, there's fewer people in the DMs versus people in the public, you know, sphere. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I never I never thought of that as being a, a, a funnel specifically that you could apply to Twitter, right? But you're right, you know, it is just like any other kind of funnel from a marketing perspective. Um, okay, that's very interesting. Um, I have a couple of questions around hiring. I know we had a chance to connect about this sure. before I wanted to. I know you have some thoughts on this, so let me yeah. let me go. Let me fire away. Um, you were mentioning before that the hiring process in early stage companies is quite messy. You know, mm. in many ways, understandably, it's because they have no HR, they have no process or whatnot. So I wanted to ask because we work with a lot of startups, and you know, we're at that growth point as well. Where when do you need to have a process for hiring, and when can you get away with not having one? Like, what are those like? breakers, so to speak. Yeah. So I think let's split it up into two phases, right? So one is initial, right? You're just starting out and you want to work with people. So I think it's fair to say that with very early, just starting out startups, right? There's no product, there's nothing. You're just trying to validate whether something has legs. Mm -hmm. And I think just as even with post-product market fit, I think a lot of your success pre-product market fit is determined by your rate of learning. Right? Which means that you need people who are almost naturally attuned to moving fast. Right? And not sort of waiting and planning and you know thinking, you know, as much, right? And so, you know, I actually have a set of questions that I use for growth people. Um but I think the basic questions apply as much even to, you know, any person you want to bring on to your early team, right? And so and I'll, I'll, I'll walk through them. So like one question I like to ask is sort of how do people balance the need between getting things done versus finding better ways to do them, right? Because ultimately, right, it's not only about, yeah, some things, there's just table stakes, right? Whether you need to create... Uh, mock-ups or whatever it is, but at the same time, you're constantly proving and disproving hypotheses, right? And trying to figure out, okay, even if I need to talk to, I need to talk to 10 people, right? Great, but is there a way I can accelerate who those 10 people are or can I get smarter about who those 10 people are the next time I talk to people? Like, so how, how would people do that, right? What's that thought process there? Um, a second one is sort of, you know, how do people handle situations when they need to deliver with very few guidelines? I mean. Think about it, early startup, right? No product, no nothing. There's no playbook for anything. So how do you deal with that? Um, third sort of question is, you know, again, as with early startups, right, you're constantly learning and pivoting. Right? Because what you think is the solution or the problem may not be, right? So, you know, you I I'd like to understand, right? So like, you know, about times when people themselves had to change directions very quickly, right? How did they respond? What was the outcome? Mm -hmm. Right? Because some people aren't comfortable with that or have never encountered the situations. And, um, you know, I think the last sort of question is sort of about, you know, times when, you know, solutions to problems people came up with that may have been really different than what had been done before, right? Because 
it's easy to say, oh, we know something, we learn something, right? That's like sitting on your laurels, right? And but again, early startup as much, it's about challenging the status quo, right? Like, oh, Google does search this way. Fine. Okay. Is there a better way we can do things? I don't know. Like, let's go and figure it mm -hmm. out. Some people are like, oh no, it's done, right? Google. Yeah. Right. So I think these sorts of things tell you a lot about, you know, sort of people how fast people move, their ability to prioritize, right? Their comfort with risk. Uh, you know, things like that, which I think are good proxies for the kinds of people you want on early, right? And I think that can hold you in pretty good stead for a really long time. Um, but I think the time to sort of start to think about this a little bit more systematically is post-product market fit. Because once you've got to that point, now is the time to get systematic about things, right? And that being systematic is as much about you know processes which are all related to you know finding users sales funnels all that sort of stuff accounting you know all that fun stuff and it's as much about who else do you need on your team because now you'll have a slightly different strategy than you did pre-product market fit mm -hmm. right so you need to have a really good sense of based on the strategy we're trying to execute now right what are the gaps in the kinds of people we have on board, right? And the strategy we're trying to execute towards, right? Because certain people are great for executing towards certain kinds of strategies, right? And so you need to think about everything from, you know, what should my organizational structure be? Should we still be flat? Do we now need to create, you know, something more matrixed? Whatever it may be, there's no right or wrong answer. But everything, you have to sort of backtrack from, okay, here's what we're trying to achieve. And a, an organizational structure that maybe is organized in X way is best suited for executing in a certain kind of way. And if we have this kind of an organization now that is based, designed based on the strategy, now what are the kind of people we need to fit into the slots that can then execute on this strategy in this organization? And you'd want to go back and look at, okay, are there gaps there? Do we need to double down on certain kinds of people? Do we need different kinds of people? What might that be? Yeah. So, uh, for, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think early on in the process, you're, would you be looking for more kind of like good generalists who know like different types of things, who are problem solvers, who could learn versus then later getting more specialists? Uh, in general, yes. Right? Because I think, again, I think you're, because I, I, I think you're indexing more on ability to move quickly and to learn fast. Right, and I don't think there's a specific skill set necessarily needed, uh, you know, for those things, which is why I lean on the questions, you know, I mentioned because that tells me a lot about how they work. Oh, interesting. Um, not to put you on the spot, but yeah, we'd love to uh, we'd love to share those question sets, uh, sure. <laughs> you know, when when we uh, do the recording, because um, I think it'll be really valuable for people to know what to think about what to look for in, in, in those team members. So yeah, sorry, it's just a thought I had. Um, uh, I wanted to ask, um, a follow-up question to the whole team and, 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 and the data driven side of things. Uh, you previously mentioned, um, that you could take a, as much of a data driven approach to building out your team as you can for a product. So like we talked briefly about like a lot of the skill sets and like the things that you can do and the, uh, people to look out for, but um, how do you really look at uh, 
data from a talent or from a team perspective? Like, what do you optimize for? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think what people generally tend to do is look at two things, which is, you know, past experience and, you know, skills. But I think that's a really incomplete picture of an, any given person. Uh, and I think that the missing piece, which I have, I think, come to lean on uh, is work styles. Hmm. Um, right. And so I think it's that combined picture that gives me a much better sense of not only has this person, you know, maybe done X, Y, or Z, right? But they've been able to do X, Y, Z because they have a certain way of working, right? So I'm relying sort of, you know, less on reputation, you know, as much on some more objective measure, right, of what are they hardwired to work like, right? And again, I was exposed to this because I was, you know, again, serendipity, I worked at a company that, you know, did assessments like these, uh, and I completely bought into it uh, at that point, because this to me was the missing piece of the puzzle of, you know, you can have a great process, but if you don't have the right people to execute on that process, nothing's going to happen. Um, and again, that that's a function of everything they are about as, and it, you know, it's like the cliche is you hire a whole person, right? You don't hire... A, you know, a resume, you don't hire skills, you hire everything they are, not just everything they've done. Right. And so I think you can use assessments like this uh, to not only look at what, you know, what are the needs of the role itself, right? Because there's a, depending on the stage of the company, depending on the kind of role, how do I need somebody to actually work to be successful in this role? Right, and then make the hire based on those needs. Right, versus oh, I just want a marketer, and great. Hey, I heard about X person. You're a great marketer looking for a job, right? Like sometimes, like that's just it makes no sense. That 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 is a very subjective way of hiring people. All right, so you know, I'd want a greater alignment between the needs of the role and the way a person is actually hardwired to work as sort of at least one cut. Uh, to make an initial determination of, okay, is this person, at least at the broadest level, can they do the work the way I need them to do the work? Mm -hmm. After that, I'd want a much better sense of, okay, the reason this role even exists, right, is because there's a gap in my team, right? Because every team also needs to operate in a certain way, right? And again, the reason a team needs to operate a certain way is because the business has certain strategic objectives it needs to meet. Right. So again, this is me sort of backtracking all the way to say, okay, these are the objectives and here's how the team operates currently. What are the needs of the team in terms of the way this team needs to operate for the business as a whole to hit those objectives, which is what determines the role itself. And then I go hire somebody because now I'm meeting multiple dimensions of fit. Right. I'm not only meeting the fit for the role because you work the way the role needs you to work. I'm meeting the needs of the team because the team has this gap that is preventing them from meeting those strategic objectives, right? Ideally, you know, there's some thought even been given to, okay, if I add this person to my team as a manager, like what does that dynamic now look like? Like, could I, like, would this work well? Would this not work well? Who knows, 
no right or wrong answer, but you at least want to put some thought into that. Uh, and you know, finally, you know, again, the reason I think I want to lean on you know the strategic objectives and then the delta between the way the team operates is because ultimately the way a team operates has a lot to do with the kind of cultural values you put in place. Because the culture you build is basically nothing but a framework to encourage certain kinds of behaviors. Hmm. Right? And so I'd want to know then that is adding this person to the team also adding right to the organization's culture as a whole which then allows it you know to have this 1 plus 1 equal 11 type situation no it's very true i think uh every new person that you bring on especially in an early stage company can make or break in my opinion you know various aspects of your team or your department and your company fundamentally so like building out that team culturally is just so so important i couldn't agree more um uh so like i was actually wanted to ask you like when you're building out your culture within your company um how early do you need to start thinking about it i would do it as quickly as i can literally because uh, again like i was saying is i think you want to be as explicit as possible right about you know what is desired in how we behave because how we behave is going to determine our success or not so it doesn't need to be you know like very prescriptive right i mean they're building blocks which are meant to for me to answer the question of if i'm in doubt and there's nobody else to ask can i lean on these principles to give me the answer Right. Right. No, it's it's very true. That's very true. Yeah. I think uh, values and beliefs tying into with their principles are super key. And you can take a data-driven approach to create values as well. So in fact, I did that at a past company uh, last year where we did this exercise of, you know, asking the founders, okay, what are strategic objectives of this company? It was great because the founders themselves didn't agree which was an awesome exercise to go through as well. But then we layered on, okay, this this is the company strategy. What are we giving to teams as objectives? And we found that there was a bit of a mismatch in the team objectives and the company strategy as a whole. And we're like, okay. And then we layered on uh, work styles of everybody else through the lens of, okay, Here's how our team is balanced or misbalanced in terms of the way they are hardwired to work. And based on the way they work, there is a gap between the objectives of the teams they're on and the strategy of the company as a whole, right? So we are either over-indexing on one part, right? Or that we have a gap in the other part and the next few people we bring onto the team should cover for those gaps. But because we had an umbrella of, okay, these are the objectives of the, and the strategy of the company, you know, we want to recreate values that encourage more people to behave, you know, the way, you know, that can achieve these uh, strategic objectives, you know, much cleaner in a much clearer fashion, right? And so having that clarity as to, okay, here's how we want to achieve, uh, or here's what we want to achieve, you know, what sort of, you know, principles 
should that embody in a company? And that gave us a good sort of anchor point to determine what these are. Were. And we could tell like overnight, the way people behaved was completely different. Really? Oh, so that's, uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Anush. Um, I think lots of takeaway there. Uh, my last question I have before we wrap up uh, is, I think this is a, a tough question, but you know, when you, as a founder, when you're building out your company, uh, I've seen the the mistake of bringing on uh, a marketer too soon. Mm. Um, and that's before they have a product or anything else. Uh, yeah. And they're hoping that they can have a marketer basically figure things out for them right. by getting the word out uh, and things like that. And just not really relying on what the business or what the product needs to solve. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Like, when is the right time to bring on a marketer? I think yeah, so I, think, I want to ask. Yeah. So I think that's first we need to understand what the role of marketing, you know, as done by a marketer really should be. And to me, the role of that person is first to take something that is validated, finished, whatever word you want to use and raise awareness for that so that they can fill your sales pipeline and drive revenue, right? So I, I think what gets missed is that, you know, marketers can only grow something that is, you know, that is already working. Pre-product market fit, you have no idea what problem you're even solving, what the solution is, for whom, you know, and what you know, message you need to give these people. So what are they going to market, right? Once all of this is clarified, yes, then they can go find a channel to apply these learnings of, okay, now I know the message and for whom, let me go find the right channel, right? Let me now fill the pipeline, let me now drive revenue, right? But I, I think part of what you're getting at is, you know, is it too early to start marketing mm -hmm. as a company, right? And I think the answer to that is absolutely not, right? You should be marketing as early as possible, but just as with growth, it is everybody's job in the company to market. You don't need a marketer to do that, right? And, you know, given that there is no product, there's nothing, what you are essentially talking about is your vision for a world where the problem you're going after is solved. Because when you do that, what you will do is understand more about, are we even using the right language? Mm -hmm. You know, is anybody resonating? If they're resonating, great. Right? We found a few you know, believers, early adopters, right? but I think that's your job is to communicate the vision, which is marketing. I think people conflate marketing with, you know, or what a marketer does with, you know, oh, weekly campaigns and, and PR and content marketing and SEO and all that other fun stuff, right? which yes, they should do when you have you know, validated learning on who you're going after with what message and maybe even a channel that's kind of sort of working, which they can scale. But until then, yes, everybody is a marketer. Everybody's a marketer. Uh, awesome. Uh, Anush, I think that's a great way for us to wrap up. Actually, maybe if there was my final question, if there was one message you would want to depart with to the audience, what would you want to tell them? The only reason you are in business is to grow value to your users. Everything else is a function of that. 
right? Because when people think about growth, what we are really saying is sustainable growth. Sustainable growth comes from repeatedly providing value. And your job, when I say your, anybody and everybody's job in the company is to do the most impactful thing they can every day to grow value to users, right? And I think that's a great question to ask yourself every day is mm -hmm. what am I doing today to help move the needle on value delivered? If you do that, I promise you, your company is going to grow. You will make money. Everything will follow. Everything will line up. Yeah. Awesome. Anush, thank you so much. I really appreciate all your knowledge and wisdom sharing with us today. Uh, it's, it's great having you. Pleasure. Always fun nerding out on this stuff. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners for subscribing to our show, supporting our podcast. Um, I do have a question for you guys who are going to be listening. Is like, how do you like our recent interviews? Feel free to drop me a message and a, con and a connect request on LinkedIn or in a message directly. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, and uh, stay tuned for our next episode. Anush, thank you again so much. Thanks for having me.